All right, so now I want to kind of take a deep dive in some of the lingo that you were exposed to back during your first year of training uh, as we look at this sort of intersection between culture and philosophy of ministry. I want to begin to sort of um, talk about culture in a number of aspects and then describe the lingo we use in RYM's training uh, around this lingo. Uh, there was a wonderful um, uh, uh, book by Edgar uh, Schein called Organizational Culture and Leadership where he basically says culture functions in three ways or with three things working within it. Uh, the first thing that happens in a culture is there are what we will call artifacts. I don't know whether that's too esoteric a word. Um, an artifact is just something that gets produced. Uh, we would call artifacts the visible qualities of an organization. I forgot to turn this on. Check, one, two. Great, we're there. So the artifacts are the, are the visible qualities of an organization. Okay? In other words, it's what you're making. Uh, if you're looking for a great discussion on culture, uh, Culture Making by Andy Crouch, in my opinion, is one of the best things that, that has been written in this regard. Um, because what Andy says is, is that you know a culture by the products that it produces. That is the visible manifestation of whatever a culture is. What does its product look like? Um, so for your youth group, what does your product look like? This is a very important question that is rarely asked. Like, really, what are we trying to make here? It might be that, you know, without questioning it, you decided you wanted to make a large group of people. Which is not a bad goal, it's not an evil goal, but it's a goal. It's an artifact. It's a thing that you wanted to make of your, uh, of your thing. Um, what you become after your time as a youth minister, if this is a temporary role for you, is an artifact. It's a thing that you make out of yourself or out of other things or, or other situations. Okay? Um, yeah, whatever you, it is that you are making. Secondly, underneath the artifacts are what we call beliefs, and values, all right? These are the meanings of an organization, okay? Self-conscious, espoused commitments in an organization that said, this is what we're going to be like. This is who we are. Um, and what happens to these things is almost oftentimes they devolve into cliché. But clichés are not bad. Clichés are things that actually help the organization remind itself of who it is. Uh, a company might say, the customer is always right. And that would be a sort of definition. That would be sort of a belief, a value. Um, reaching and equipping. <coughs> All right? That is a stated belief. It's a value that this organization has set forward. Yes, it's jargon, but the idea is in any organization to begin to fill up those vocabulary with meaning. Okay? And so the, the beliefs and values become the meaning of the organization, if you will. Thirdly, and this is one that we've been trying to get at uh, this morning in our first session, there are underlying assumptions. Underlying assumptions. These are ideas that have become so taken for granted that you find almost no variation within a given social unit. They are completely unquestioned values. Uh, and, of course, the, this degree of consensus results from 
being successful all the time. It worked in the past. That these people implemented these beliefs and values, and so therefore, this is the way you do it. We know, they would say, that this is how it goes. Some of you are laughing because you know how this works in your churches. Okay? Churches are famous for having all kinds of underlying assumptions that are driving the culture of their organization, but never having been explicit about them. And why would you? Because we all know that it works that way. That's not what goes on in the city. That's not how the youth believe. That's not what they act like. That'll never work. Everybody knows it. It's completely assumed. Um, if a basic assumption comes to be held strongly in a group, members will find behavior, any other behavior, inconceivable uh, based on any other premise. Why would you even think about that? That's not even worth it. No, the iPhone will gain no market share. Zero. It can't happen. Why? Because what's happened is there's been this underlying assumption. Um, underlying assumptions don't always receive the input that they need from beliefs and values. This is what's so interesting about underlying assumptions, is you can talk a big game. This is what I basically spent my whole first session trying to convince you of. You can talk a big game about what these are, but until they penetrate these underlying assumptions, then we're going uh, to be in trouble. Um, and what ends up, this is what's crazy, what ends up creating most of these underlying assumptions, you ready for this? Trauma in the system. When the pastor had an affair. Uh, when that elder um, got uh, busted and went to jail for fraud. Uh, when the hurricane came through and destroyed the church. Okay, this is going on the coast right now, uh, after last summer. Um, Say again? What is the trauma? That's when underlying assumptions The trauma creates the underlying assumptions. In other words, what happens is, is they sit, people simply react to an event that is tragic or hard or challenging. And those things, because they were never filtered through strong beliefs and values, become underlying assumptions. And people will oftentimes, when you try to present these things to them, will have this, this thing so triggering them at each point that they're unable to even look and notice that they're there. You talk a big game, blah, 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 blah. That sounds great. That's so cute what you did at RYM. How helpful. But what you don't realize is that they're still a traumatized organization. They're still hurting. There were lots of hurt feelings when this church left the PCUSA with the PPC or the PCA or the ARP. Lots of hurt feelings left over that. It was the trauma that creates these underlying assumptions, almost always. Now, where does RYM fit in with this? Great question. I think that uh, Shine is completely right about the, the cultural questions. It's an easy description of culture, if you ask me. <clears throat> RYM's philosophy of ministry is attempting to be the chief informer of the culture of your youth group. That's another way of stating the goal of RYM. We would like to be one of the main informational sources for the culture of your youth group. Of what it, and, and because of the culture of your youth group, the culture of your church as well. Which is one of the reasons why we don't even really talk about your youth group without making a nod at the fact that you're part of a larger culture called a local church. Okay? That has all of its own things going into it. What's it like when the pastor who started our church starts another church a few miles away from ours? Am I right about that? How does that feel? I'm just bonding here with the Houston folks. Right? So where does it fit in? All right, so let's start talking about, about artifacts. 
In our artifacts, where does our lion philosophy ministry think? Well, it comes in our purpose, which we're going to talk about in just a second. It comes in our goals, right? In other words, when we start to identify our purpose and goals, we're trying to talk about what it is that we want to be, what do we want to produce, what do we want to crank out there, what does success look like? Um, I was talking with some... Uh, some I, got, I have to anonymize this illustration. Bear, bear with me. I was speaking with some religious people. Um, <laughs> I, can be more I was speaking with some missionaries who were uh, uh, filling out a form uh, to apply for, fun uh, for um, funding for their ministry from another big steeple church. And one of the questions that came from the ministry was, how many professions of faith were made in your group last year? And if you don't track those, how do you measure the success of your evangelism? That was the question. Interesting. And we were having this conversation because these people were saying, uh, I am struggling with the question about what the product looks like. Because is it possible that someone could even question whether or not professions of faith are the best measure for us to know what our artifacts actually are. Les doesn't like people who make professions of faith. That is not <laughs> Whatever you do, don't make professions of faith. That's what they told me at RYM. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, is that the measure of professions of faith? Is that the best way of saying whether or not I was really successful? Did I make what we wanted to make as a youth group? See how persistent these questions are? You're kind of getting to sort of what's underneath why you get up in the morning and do your job. <laughs> or why you drove to Nashville, for of all places, to have a conversation about this. Okay? Beliefs and values. Okay? This is our, um, these are our conversations about our, sorry, this is also principles up here as well, which we'll talk about in just a second. Um, <clears throat> our beliefs and values. This is our sort of approach to um, student problems. You know what? That's not right. Principles belong down here. Student problems. Our principles, our stated values. What are we about as an organization? What do, what do we say are the most important things to us as a ministry? And then finally, underlining assumptions. You ready for this? I don't know. What are they? And are you equipped to diagnose your context to listen for what those underlying assumptions are? All right, this is getting to your questioning, but we were talking about before. In other words, it's more than just doing demographic work about being like, how many students go to you know, uh, ECS versus Briarcrest? What's my breakdown in my, uh, in my town between those two schools? Right? It's a little bit more than that. It's more than just doing basic demographic data. It's asking questions about what are the assumptions that even I'm bringing. Hey, why did you do this job? Seriously. What, what brought you into it? And has anybody given you the freedom? This may be the first time anybody's ever given you the freedom. Has anybody given you the freedom to all of a sudden own the fact that you did this for purely selfish reasons? No one ever gave you the freedom to admit that fact. When I was, when I was, well, as soon as I got out of high school, the summer between high school and, and my freshman year in college, I was invited to be a youth leader on our church's uh, youth retreat, our big sort of summer youth trip. Um, and it was, it, was a, it was an interesting experience. I jumped right into it and never was ever stopping to think about the fact of how gratifying it was 
to have all these junior high kids look up to me. I never, I never addressed that in myself. It was never safe to address that in myself or to, or to own it. You know what it first happened was when I finally got married. Marriage is wonderful for sort of uncovering underlying assumptions. Um, so there was an so my, my wife and I met in my first year at the University of Memphis. She was teaching math. She's a math teacher, and she's gorgeous. Go figure, okay? Um, who ever heard of a gorgeous math teacher? But she's drop dead attractive. Um, and um, am I right? She's cute, isn't she? She's extremely cute. Um, so Ginger and I meet, and, but I was single for two years as a campus minister before we got married. We dated and married and did the whole thing. And um, within like two months of being married, we're having fun doing the married thing, and I'm a campus minister, and it was not high maintenance at the University of Memphis because everybody worked in the afternoon. I would be on campus from about like 8.30 a.m. to maybe 1.30, and then like I was kind of done for the day. I'd go play golf. That's great. Um, um, so... Um, Anyway, but Ginger came in one day after a sort of particularly long day where I had like four one-on-one -on -one visits with students uh, strung out, okay? And I kind of came in in the day, it was kind of whatever, and she was kind of working on dinner or something. She was like, well, how was your one-on-ones today? And without thinking, I said, they were awesome. And again, Ginger, if you know her, is not like a, she's not a like, hmm, what is he thinking? That is the opposite of Ginger. Like, she just doesn't want to... <laughs> You don't want to do self-reflection really about anything. It's wonderful. It makes her great to, to be around. Um, I'm kidding a little bit. <laughs> so, I was like, did he mean that? Was he insulting her? Um, she would say that if she was sitting right here. She's like, I don't want to think about it. Um, but, um, so she comes and she was like, can I ask you a question? What is it that makes a good one-on-one -on -one and what makes a bad one-on-one? -on -one? Like, you're so enthusiastic about it there, preacher boy. Like, what, uh, <laughs> what, make, what makes a good one? And you know that moment where you just kind of go, I don't know. And it takes you maybe four and a half seconds to do a quick little replay of why you were so positive about your visits that day. And it suddenly occurred to me, and for whatever reason, just this powerful way, um, that the reason why I said they were so awesome is because at each visit, someone had either said something nice about me or about RUF at Memphis. And there was this little house of cards that kind of came crumbling down around me. And I was like, this is the Les Newsome show. That's all this is. And you know when you, you know, it starts with just that one little thought? And give it, give it about an hour or a day, and suddenly it snowballs into like, I've never done anything good in ministry, ever. I'm probably not a Christian either. I'm not, you know, I'm not the Lance Book of Life. Everything goes wrong at that point by the time you get to that point your day. Um, and I spent the next month and a half trying to get out of ministry. I literally had a conversation with a friend of mine in Memphis to talk about, like, what does it look like to work for a funeral home? He worked for this huge, multi-gajillion dollar funeral I'm not making that up. When the guy who was speaking in the other room, they talked talk me down off the ledge. And it was hilarious what Stone said. Why is John your best friend? It's this reason right here. Because I looked at him and I was like, you understand, I've realized that I've just got all these horrible, terrible motives um, when I'm meeting with people. Like, it's just kind of me doing the Les Newsome show. And he was like, yeah. And he was like, well, so what are you bringing to students? He goes, are you basically saying that the fact that you're noticing that you're screwed up means that you can't minister to screwed up people? Is that what you're saying? Like, now I'm worried about what you've been telling them. <laughs> because if all of a sudden some demerit on your part kicks you out of your ability to minister, does that not suggest that up until this time your effectiveness has been based upon your merit before the Lord? He goes, I think you might need to get out of ministry for, the, for a different reason. <laughs> um, it's... 
vintage Jonestown. Like, there's nothing more uh, true here. I don't even know what I was talking about. Now. What were we talking about? Um, yeah, there we go. There it is. All right, so that's your underlying assumptions of how we address those particular things. What RYM is trying to give to you is a grid through which you can understand the purpose of your ministry, where you can get identified about your goals of ministry, that you can identify what the, um, the culture of your ministry is. Here's the definition of philosophy of ministry. I will give it to you from the founder of RUF himself, and that's what we have built our thing on. A philosophy of ministry is a unique set of priorities and styles. Hold on to those two words, priorities and styles. Embraced, that's what we're doing here, we're embracing them. We are warmly encouraging you to embrace these values and used in a particular church in carrying out the work of ministry. A philosophy of ministry is a unique set of priorities and styles embraced and used in a particular church to carry out the work of ministry. That's what we're trying to commend to you is a unique set of priorities. Priorities. What, what's the first things first? What's the most important thing I've got to do today? What am I going to accomplish? How will I know when I've accomplished it? And then styles. Those styles are dependent upon the fact um, that uh, are dependent on the fact that you are able yourself uh, to uh, implement this in your own context. That you're going to go back to your youth group and to your church and you're going to develop your philosophy of ministry. So there's a number of different ways we talk about it. Um, <coughs> this is what we've always said sort of in, in, in campus ministry uh, realm. There is a way of talking about a theology of ministry. Okay? This is typically what seminary taught you. For those of you that took seminary courses or took any online Bible classes or whatever. Is they taught you the, the big truths. The truths of the gospel. All of which you came to love. Have you ever had that moment where you heard something, you studied a book, and you were like, man, people need to know this. Like, that's a big deal. That's what the theology of ministry is. But there's a second sort of idea that's underneath that, which is a, um, how did I phrase this? I'm going to be consistent here before I dive into this. Mm -hmm. Hold on. Then there's a philosophy of ministry. which is your unique sort of set of styles <coughs> that come from RYM. At least we're making a recommendation to you. And then finally, there's your church or youth group, uh, uh, POM. In other words, the philosophy ministry that you implement. Okay, So you've got these great truths. We're trying to sort of translate those into something that will work for your place, that's uniquely styled to your place. You know, I just don't think RYM, that's something they talk about RYM, that's just not really relevant to my context. By definition, that's wrong. Now, it doesn't mean that we've taught it to you well, but the whole point of what RYM is trying to do is to help you translate these particular truths into an action plan that is tailor-suited for your spot. Now, we may not have taught it to you very well. That's, that's within the realm of possibility. But it's impossible to say that it doesn't work in your context. Because the whole thing is about contextualization. That's what the whole the, the exercise is about. I'm going to draw this in a different way. Now, here's where it gets hard. Seminaries do this. 
They do the theology of ministry well. Local churches, when you take jobs with them, assume that seminaries taught you this. And they didn't. Okay? But they assume it, which is why it's very hard very quickly in those places. Parachurch ministries focus on this. They have one methodology, one plan. Okay? Just do this. Go with these tried and true methods. Here's a, here's a track. Present this track to people for spiritual laws. Get them to walk through it. Have them pray the prayer. And now you've got a profession of faith. Okay. Again, that, that's, that's what they do well. All right? What we're trying to say in RYM is, is we want to focus on this for a while so that we can bring this together with that. So that the beliefs that you have come in line with the values that you have. Les, is there a way to draw that out? Well, I'm so glad you asked. That is what it is. RYM, we are trying to create some unity between three things. something that we want to say. There's truth. Right? There's, there's, there's things that are important. People should know this. And what's interesting is, is RYM is actually commending to you what we think those things are. I'm going to unpack them this afternoon, but I'll tell you what they are now. They are things like should I start with? Let's start with Scripture. Scripture. Justification. Sanctification. And, begrudgingly, glorification. I said begrudgingly because I have a little ongoing conversation about whether that should or should not be a uh, principle. But that's between John Perry and me. So I won't bore you with it. But basically what all I am saying is, is look, there are a thousand different ways for you to frame cool truths in the Bible. But we want you to unify yourself around these. Now, why these and not others? Well, you know what? If you got some better ones, knock yourself out. <laughs> but we're saying this. It's very easy if you don't define what those are to be tossed about by the latest fad that's coming through Christendom. What is the thing everybody needs? Everybody must know the prayer of Jabez. Now, I don't know if anybody here is old enough to know what the prayer of Jabez even is. But back in the early 2000s, you could scarcely be a Christian if you did not know and pray and repeat the prayer of Jabez. And it was in, what, 1st, 2nd Chronicles or something like that? I don't know where it was. I didn't read the book. Um, it was the be-all, end-all. This was ministry at its heart. Sold a gajillion copies of this thing. In the mid-2000s, you could not live as a Christian if you didn't understand a purpose-driven life. <laughs> there was no way you could understand ministry in that regard. What's crazy about it is, is Warren, Rick Warren was on the right, he was on the right idea. He was closer than, than most when it came to that. But it still became the latest thing. And youth ministry is famous for this, riding whatever latest trend. Or even worse, something that you came up with was like the thing people must know. I got into this job because I don't want people to make the same mistakes I made. All right, all right. That's interesting. But like, is that really what everybody deals with in your world? Are you sort of imposing something on them that's not really true for where they are? 
So we're basically saying we want to give you a recommendation. And this afternoon I'm going to make an appeal to you about why I think these are actually really good things. They are, they are elegant. And that's why, that's why. We're not telling you because it's the most biblical thing you can say. We're telling you because it's valuable. And for the very short little four years, four to six years you've got with your youth group, it would be great if they could walk away with an idea of truth, an idea of grace, an idea of change, and an idea of hope. That would be pretty daggum good. You know? You get them ready for life on those things. Then we can have your arguments about whether or not Jesus is going to come back you know, in ten years. Now, but presumably you also noticed that there's another fact, and that is someone's paying me to, oh, I don't know, do something. i got to do something. I mean, I'm going to have some actions, right? What do I do? What are the best practices that come with doing youth ministry? What are those practices? Well, what's interesting about that is our recommendation to that is, well, you know what? It kind of depends. And so we'll use the word very carefully that our practices are going to be flexible. They'll be flexible. Now, mind you, when I say the word flexible, I do not mean arbitrary. Unfortunately, RYM, it can become trendy over the years to come back and be like, well, you know, I know that's what y'all do and everything, but like, you don't understand what it's like in Henderson, North Carolina. Hendersonville. <laughs> I can't even get the name right. Um, in other words, if you all of a sudden think that your context is so special that any of the other things that people around you that are trying that are actually showing some success are irrelevant, you, you might have codified flexibility as arbitrariness. Okay, that's not good. What we say, though, in RYM is, though, flexibility is not arbitrary because of the way you go to minister. We don't spend so much time saying, five exciting programs to blow your youth group up. You know, seven games to make the kids come a-running. You know, that kind of deal. Even though we try to offer those things, there are other resources that we try to provide. Instead, what we say is, what we want to talk about is how you act. We want to talk about your behavior. We talk about your posture. We want to talk about the vibe that you put off in terms of how you interact with students. We call those our presuppositions. Presuppositions are our behaviors. Not in terms of our plans, but in terms of how we go about doing those things. And so we talk about things like reformed theology, a reformed view of scripture. Now why would that be a, why would that be a, a behavior? Well, it just means that when we sit down with our students, we're not apologetic about the fact that we are reformed. It's like, yeah, I'm going to take a side on the sovereignty thing. <laughs> yeah, there's well-meaning Christians that disagree with them, but I'm going to take a side. And for a lot of people, immediately they're kind of like, oh, that's not smart. That's not a good idea. Because the kids today, they don't like institutions. They're against anything that looks like it's sort of like a, in a pattern or in a, in a, in a it's sort of stayed and tried and true. And they're out-of-the-box thinkers. And I want to be like, mm, I actually think just the opposite. I think actually you've got about a 50-year belly full of the present generation of arbitrary um, relative truth. And they are longing for someone to tell them what to do. And you know who's telling them what to do? Uh, Islam. Which is why it's the fastest growing religion in the world right now. Going crazy. You wanna know why? There's a very strict, very clear pattern of life, very strong presentation of what life should look like. That's what happens. Because in the absence of any kind of belief in truth, the problem is not that people will believe nothing. We're gonna be lawless and lawlessness is gonna reign. No. The, the, the tragedy is people will believe anything. They will lock themselves to the loudest voice. Uh, they'll lock themselves to the Republican Party. 
or to the Democratic Party. And look at them, they'll say, save us. They will go towards the loudest voice because we are inherently worshipers. We are inherently imitators. We are mimickers at our most fundamental level. We are looking to something to mimic, to worship, to love, to delight in. And therefore, we'll go to the loudest voice. And right now, we ain't a loud voice anymore. Because we're the ones being like, well, you know, we want to we trim down our distinctives, you know. We don't want to offend anybody. You know, what we're going to do is we're going to cancel all of our programs and we're going to have a citywide unity event where we just praise. And it never works. Ever. It never does anything. Sorry. I just kind of have to be involved in a, in a unity event. Can you help? <laughs> <laughs> I guess once a semester, you get a few things being like, we're all going to cancel our worship services on Sunday mornings. And we're going to have a unity event where we just get together and just praise the Lord. And I was like, actually, no, we're not. We're going to get together and we're going to have a certain dumbed-down version of Christianity that no one finds compelling at all. Go do your thing, chicken wing. Like, I love what you're up to. And let's have the conversation. But don't think all of a sudden that dumbing them down is what sort of draws people in. That's just one of six of our, our presuppositions that we're going to talk about this afternoon. Okay? But here's the question, the question about our land when you're going to ask. How do I make sure that the things I do are not themselves contradicted by the things I believe? So there was a, there's a great book, and I had them order a few copies, and I would warmly commend you to go purchase a copy of Quest for Godliness, uh, The Puritan Vision of the Christian Life by J.I. Packer. There is no better... Uh, uh, historical, theological treatise on RYM's approach to ministry than that book. Clear as I can say. That's as best as it gets. I've read them all. And that one is as good as it gets. And largely due to a chapter entitled The Puritan View of Evangelism. And Packer begins to say at some point that in the days in which the Puritans were preaching, church going was a regular part of life. And what they did was is they made sure that in every church service they unpacked the, uh, the, the truths of the grace of God. They unpack the truths of sin. They unpack the truths of, uh, of God's sovereignty over the universe and um, saw those things bear fruit in the midst of the proclamation of God's word. But the one thing that they were aware of, and this is, is J.I. Packer's phrase. This is worth being right now. Packer says in his, in his book, modes of action that imply another doctrine cannot be accepted. Now that's negative, uh, negatively stated. Okay? Modes of action. In other words, practices that tend to suggest that I believe differently than I do cannot be tolerated, cannot be accepted. Now think about that. <laughs> Modes of action that imply another doctrine. Isn't this what we're talking about? We're talking with students to say, like, here's, what, here's the definition of what a Christian is. Now what does it look like to live that way? Does that sound familiar to you? It's the letters of the Apostle Paul. Every letter he does are in two halves. Part number one, who God has made you to be. Now part number two, what does that mean? What does that look like? Oh, it's a definition. <clears throat> it's a definition. And then the behaviors that are appropriate to that definition. Aha, did you ever think dating could be so relevant to a theological study? Modes of action that imply another doctrine cannot be accepted. That's the best one-sentence description of RYM's commendation to you that we could make. 
This is what we're longing to say. Are we willing to take a look at how we act? We call that activity philosophy. And the problem is, you took a philosophy class in college, and you're like, philosophy? Are we going to like? Uh, are you going to say Emmanuel Kant at one point during the day? <laughs> no. If we do, we failed. Um, Philosophy is not like the esoterica of metaphysics. That's not what we mean. What we mean is this ability to look in a synthetic way where we're synthesizing things. We're drawing things together into one. And what we're saying is, is are there ways for us to conceive of our ministry, of planning our ministry, of executing our ministry, that will make sure that the stuff we've come to really love is not betrayed by the way we act? Let me give you the most crude example of which. Um, it may be that you decide you're going to build your, your ministry on a foundation of grace. I want this to be a place of grace. But what does it say when all of a sudden you begin to wear out your leadership team with activity that no high school student could possibly really bear? But they're there because they love you and they're trying to keep you on their good side. See how you can talk about grace a whole lot, but then the way that you've patterned your ministry... You can betray that. And all we're asking you to do at RYN is to sort of bring your ministry under the scrutiny of a philosophy of ministry to see how did we do? How did you do this year? Like, well, how was 2018 for you? How will 2019 be for you? Because you know, we're willing, we're going to be back here in 2020 asking the same question about this year. What criteria will you use to judge that? We would like to conceive of those things using tools that we are calling Ministry dynamics. We're going to identify with those things through the rest of the afternoon. Okay? Alright, that was a lot. I recognize that. Let me make sure I didn't... Um... Yeah. Okay, a couple quick thoughts here. Um... Okay, so here's the point. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll use an illustration. Stories are more fun. Um, so um, this was like a great job to take. Let me tell you about the job that I took. I was a campus minister for 25 years, almost 25 years, until this summer when I became a, a, the lead pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Oxford, Mississippi. And everybody was like, so tell me about the job. And I'm like, okay. So number one, um, the, uh, the old pastor is going to stick around and be the associate pastor. And everybody was like, oh. <laughs> Number two, we're in the middle of a $10 million building program. They're like, oh. Number three, that building will, when it's finally uh, erected, will be about 200 yards from my front door. And people will be like, <clears throat> Les, do you, if you really thought through <laughs> this decision to kind of do this whole thing. So the building is kind of a big deal. I'm learning. It's a big deal to build a building. Try to wrap your mind around this. Um, we were kind of maybe 10% of the way in when I kind of jumped into it, so it wasn't like completely starting from scratch. Um, but we were sitting with the architect about two months ago and talking about the sanctuary, all right? What we had was is we made the congregation elect a design team, okay, which is very important. The congregation got to own that election. 
And if they don't, everybody's going to be like, we spent all this money, we don't have a dot, dot, dot. Whatever it is, somebody's going to get ticked off at, right? Um, So um, the design team goes and meets with the architect probably once a month. And we're sitting around talking about the sanctuary. And one of the things that we put in our uh, 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 sort of statement of values about the sanctuary is we wanted it flooded with natural light. As much natural light as we can give. Kind of like this. These are big windows here, you know. I now know about the framing of these windows and how they look in a certain scheme. Um, well, one of the things that the architect said, he goes, look, you've got a little bit of a problem. Because if you want to do projection onto these blank walls behind the back part of the sanctuary, with that much natural light coming in, it's going to be tough to get those things bright enough for everybody to see. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. All right. And um, because people had said that screens were going to be a, a, an option. And then he said, well, you know what you could do is you could just go to LED screens. And I was like, that sounds crazy expensive. He's like, well, you'd be surprised. It's not quite as expensive as you think. I was like, well, talk to me about it. So he goes and talks about the fact that it's you know, an LED screen like a television. He went up on the back, yada, yada, yada. And I'm sitting there listening to him talk, and I was like, okay, okay, okay. And I look back at the design team, and every one of them are doing this. <laughs> <laughs> And, I'm just, and I turned back and I was like, oh, um, I said, I don't think we're okay with that. What? 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 Every single one of them were kind of like, mm, that's just not going to go over with the congregation. I was like, why is it not going to go over with the congregation? And they were like, it's just mm, screens. Mm, it's just screens. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, but you said it was okay to have a projection. They were like, you know, it's different if you're projecting something up there versus like there's a big TV up there. And I was like, how is it different that there's something in between those two? They had no idea, but it was universally understood. I don't want to go to church and have be a big TV up there. That just seems like we're going to turn to one of those churches. And literally, they started saying, when I started getting, I was like, no, I want to talk about this. I told the architects that we got to have a conversation. I'm like, tell me what your reaction is. And one of them was kind of like, you know, I just feel like I've been to those churches that, like, whenever they put the lyrics of the song up. There's like bubbles floating behind the lyrics. <laughs> Motion graphics, you know? And, and I was like, okay, A, did you think that I was going to do that? That's insulting, but that's okay. B, that's your rationale? Like, as long as there's no bubbles, you'll be okay? Like, you're okay with static graphics? But not like, if we have like a color up there, is that okay? I, I'm just screens, just screens. I'm like, screens? Everybody has a screen. Not only that, so last spring... You can tell I had a little bit of a problem. With <laughs> you can tell. So last spring, when I when when they when they off when they when I when they took the call to the job was this time last year. Um, I asked them if I could wait for my start date to be July first. One was to finish well with RUF, so I could finish up my campus visits and not leave them kind of high and dry. Secondly, it was so that I could visit all the other area churches in town and go to see what was going on in Oxford. You know, I've never been to other churches in town. We ever went to Christ Preps. so I want to see what other people are getting incredibly educational. Guess how many of them did not have LED screens? Zero. Goose egg. Not one of them. <laughs> We're the only ones that don't. And here's my whole point. It's like, tell me how you got from being completely opposed to that practice from this particular theological commitment. Where exactly would that theological commitment be? And look, I, this is not a commercial to put screens. I could not care less. What I was fascinated by was their revulsion. That's what was interesting. It wasn't the fact. I couldn't care less about whether we do projection screens. I could not care less. I want it to look good. But what I found is, and this is, this is my little statement that I wrote down here. There is a 
powerful inertia in your youth group and in your church to be non-reflective, reaction-based, personality-driven, and program-driven. That is the inertia. Four things. Non-reflective. I don't know. I don't know. Yes. Stop asking me questions. I don't know why we did it. I just did. I needed something to do and I did it. Why did you study Jude? It's Jude. Why did you study Jude for your small group? I don't know. Don't study Jude. It's a weird book. <laughs> reaction-based. That's the trauma thing we were talking about this morning. Churches live off of reactionism. That's the whole thing about the screens. We're not going to become like one of them Baptist churches. Do you have any idea how terribly we speak of Baptist one? <laughs> do y'all know? Do y'all know? Um, we, we assume y'all say the same thing about us, but that's okay. We're going to be like some Baptist church after this. It's going to be terrible. Personality driven. So um, John Newton, a uh, uh, guy who wrote Amazing Grace, in his, uh, in his biography of his conversion, he has this little throwaway line where he says, I came to realize that, I've forgotten the quote. What, what, oh, cried John Perrick. Custom, example, and interest had blinded my eyes. Custom, that's the way you've always done it. Example, well, that's the way so-and-so does it. And interest, I just don't like that. Had blinded me. How are these things blinding you, is the question. Because the big deal about the philosophy of ministry is the biggest variable that you've got to deal with on, uh, on, on, in your youth group or at your church is you. And what we want for you to have is a week where you come together and think, through, okay, 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 what do I do? What's the thing that I do? We're recommending some behaviors for you. But what do I do? And is that really in keeping with what I've come to love? Do I even know what I've come to love as a ministry? And man, once I get that, how do I keep those together? That's what a philosophy of ministry is. It took me a whole morning to tell you what philosophy of ministry was. Okay? Um, I feel like there was one that was like the last. Yeah. Oh, program, program driven. Non reflective, reaction based, personality driven, and program driven. And it kills churches and pastors. It kills youth pastors big time. <coughs> big time. And I will say this you know, you can go to RYM and get kind of blinded by science and be like, we got it. And you're going to go back to your church and become like this master conductor, you know, where you, where you do this beautiful symphony of, of program, you know, whatever else. But the truth is it's really like riding on the, getting on the back of a, of a bull and just like going riding that thing just trying to stay on, you know, for eight seconds. Um, it's not a gentle process for most people. Okay? All right, last, last illustration. We'll have time for questions and then lunch. Um, so what is a philosophy of ministry? Philosophy of ministry is an operating system. Again, I told you we'd get all geeked out here. Okay, does everybody know that does anybody know the difference between that? Augusta, can I see your computer for a second? I know you're typing. Just for a second. I want to hold it up in front of people. How can you type that microscopic font? You know you can look at it in much bigger way. I don't know how to do that. At age fifty one, I couldn't do this. This is part because nobody can read your, your terrible notes. Okay, so um, <laughs> What's interesting about this computer is, is there are three aspects to this computer that are important. Number one is what's called the hardware. Okay? That's the, that's the physical stuff. That's the little 
uh, uh, synapses and uh, whatever that's going on inside of the transistors or <laughs> transistors. It's <laughs> <laughs> the cathode ray tubes on the inside. I'm trying to find some ancient sort of thing. Transistors. Yeah. Semiconductors. I'm just making up words now. Um, not really a geek. Um, that's the hardware, okay? The second thing is the software. Right now, Augusta is using Microsoft Word, which is a lovely bloated piece of, of a word processing program. Okay? But there's something else that's in the background, and it's called iOS. Let's see what version you're using, my darlings. Huh? Mac OS. Mac OS. I said iOS. Stop it. <laughs> You've got six updates. <laughs> I don't know how to do it. You are, you're as bad as my wife. All right, so she is running something called Mac OS Mojave, which is one of the latest versions, but you need to update it. Mojave. <laughs> you need to update it. I'm going to be like, I'm gonna be like your husband right now. Um, but there's an operating system. Now, what's weird about the operating system is you don't really notice it because it's the environment in which Microsoft Word is running. Does that make sense? In other words, Apple engineers sat down and decided what they would do is they would create a space that was suitable to do certain things in accordance with some very tightly held values that Apple engages in. Let's take one that's very simple. If you look in the upper, right, uh, upper left-hand corner, sorry, i got to get rid of this, of this little Mojave window, you'll notice a red dot, a yellow dot and a green dot. Do you know what the dots do, Augusta? <laughs> Maybe. You said you didn't know how it works. Um, here's the deal. What Mac said was, if you're going to write a program for our operating system, that's how people are going to close a window, uh, reduce a window into the dock, or expand a window to be full screen. That's how you're going to do it. That's just the way you're going to do it. And everybody was like, yes, we, we, we listen and we obey. Right? And what would happen is that some would sit down and they would live within that operating system and they would write their own program. And then along the way, they would test that program inside the operating system to see whether it had problems in it, which we call in the computer world bugs. And you've got to debug your software to make sure that things aren't working. But debugging a software is all about making your values, your thing that you're trying to accomplish with your thing, like word processing and trying to get it to fit within this operating system. Does that make sense? Y'all realize that exists? Mm -hmm. Augusta is like a, a fountain of knowledge of computers right now. She didn't have any idea that her computer was that sophisticated. Um, do you have, are you sick or anything? Because I just touched your computer and stuff. Do you have the cold? Do you have the flu? Yeah, a little cold. Dang it. <laughs> Wash my hands. Um, it's the operating system. Now we're talking. What is that? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> so, um, I'm a little bit of a germaphobe too. That's another thing. Your, the, the RYM's philosophy of ministry is your operating system. You got it? We're giving you the values. We're, we're commending values to you. We're actually giving you even a, a, a software developer's kit in ministry dynamics. To help you know how to write programs. And what you do in 2019 will be your program. Does that make sense? Uh, it's a geeky illustration. All the computer people are like, that's awesome. <laughs> Augustus being like, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> All right, any questions? I left some time for Q&A. Wonderful. About seven or eight minutes of Q&A. <coughs>
Yes. What kind of uh, projection are you going to have? A TV or a projector? You know, <laughs> there's no way I'm going to get away with the TV. I mean, it's it was universal the reaction against it. But I might act, well. First of all, the, t the screen's going to be too but too expensive. Like we were, I was right when I said that sounds expensive. We had to hire an owner's rep uh, about two weeks ago uh, to help sort of moderate the fight between. Have you ever done a building project? I'm in one. Are you really? Yeah. So you know the fight between the architect and the construction guy. Our construction guy is a friend of ours, and he's there to keep it in budget. The architect just wants it to be so fancy. Um, and we thought that that conflict was productive, and it was not. So we had to hire an owner's rep who is himself an architect to moderate their sort of discussion because it slowed our project down probably about, about six months. It's terrible. We should have hired him back last summer. Um, and he came in and said, it's really expensive to do LEDs. So we're probably going to go with the projection. But the, pro the reason why I brought the owner's rep in is because the acoustics to the original building were completely uh, wrong and were no not going to be workable. So we're redesigning the entire sanctuary even as we speak. Like my phone, my Slack team has been going crazy all over today redoing the sanctuary. But it's going to be a little more of a cube, more acoustically sound, and the hope is that we can get rear projection from screens. But they got to be like, well, I just want to make sure they're invisible so they're not going off the time. I go, what's wrong with you people? So There's going to be some screens, but we want to build the, 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 the projectors and the walls behind it and then flip the image. I can't imagine you want to care about that. Yeah. Talk about practice and you have your theology, ministry dynamics, philosophy, all that. Yeah. I don't know how much success you have when you realize you're talking to a group and their impulse or their practice, we're just not going to do that. Mm -hmm. Do you have a lot of success talking through, here's our theology, or are you just like, I don't know? You know, there's such a universal question. Tell me if this is a question you're asking that I've gotten for years in this very room uh, uh, from RYM folks. Is there like, you sold me, yeah. but my people back home, they don't get it. Uh, how do you do that? How do you commend them to that? And I'll say this. Um, part of that has to do with... Um, I'm going to use some language here that you may find uh, not helpful. But your church is, is, um, is bigger than just the sum of its parts when it comes to the people. That when a group of people get together, something kind of emerges above it that's kind of its own little system. You know? And oftentimes, people who study group theory will notice that systems can get very anxious about certain things. And trauma causes this. I was kind of talking a little bit about systems theory uh, uh, this morning. Um, but the, and what happens is a lot of groups become chronically anxious. They're nervous all the time. And everyone's on edge. And they can't make decisions. And small things become huge things. And turnover of staff is crazy because they get so burnt out. That's a chronically anxious system. And so the question then becomes, well, how can I hope to sort of fight that battle? I mean, what's my role in all that? And what systems theorists will say is, is the role of the, of the most effective people is to be a self-differentiated, non-anxious presence in your church. Now, what does that mean? Self-differentiated means you know who you are. You're not going to change that church, but you can figure out what your youth group is about, and you can lead them well. Know who you are. And when people come along and they, and they look at you, and they're kind of like, well... We just wish that you would have a lock-in every weekend. You'd look at me like, I'm not going to do that because that's not who I am. I can't do that. If you need to fire me, that's fine. I don't want you to, but I'm not going to do that. And what's funny is most, most sessions appreciate that kind of leadership. He knows who he is. There's some self-differentiated leadership there. And look, you've got to choose those battles carefully. A, a lock-in every weekend is an easy battle to fight. You know? um, there's other things that are not so easy. 
um, you're never allowed to show a movie that's not rated G on the bus going to on your on your trips. PG? No PG. <laughs> Those kind of things that can be more challenging uh, kind of deal. Self-differentiated and non-anxious. What happens is is I end up perpetuating the anxiety in the church by being the youth director that makes that anxiety worse. How do you do that? There's lots, lots of ways you can keep it going. Number one is what they call by triangulation. You ever heard of triangulation? So let's say that... Tell me your name again. Justin. Justin. Justin and I have got a thing. Okay? He's mad at me. I'm mad at him. Something. There's an issue here. Whenever, you've got, whenever you're at odds with an individual, okay, there is a certain measure of anxiety that comes with the fact that we're, we're, we're at odds with each other. We're not connecting at all. Um, but let's say that in dealing with that anxiety, I decide to go to Babs. And I'm like, Babs, have you ever got a Justin McDonough over there? Okay. I don't know what's going on. And what I'm doing is I'm not looking for advice from Babs. I'm not saying I need some help from you about dealing with this thing. You've got Liz in this area and I want you to help me. What I'm doing is I'm bringing her in on it. Okay? Now, Babs is very mature. She's going to refuse to be triangulated, which is what she's going to do. She's going to be like, you know what? That sounds like a good conversation you have with Justin. She could refuse that. But if she looks at she's like, I know that's so weird. I've never seen him do that before. Why does he do that? And all of a sudden, Justin finds out that I've been talking to Babs about our thing. This amount of anxiety is exponentially larger. That's triangulation. It's, it's, what, it's called gossip. It's one of the things that the Lord hates in Proverbs 6. I have a lying tongue going on top of this thing. But there's all kinds of ways to create more anxiety. You can start to um, uh, under-function. There, there's, there's fight and flight people. Some people, when they look in the church, it's hard and weird. They're like, ha ha I'm going to do my own thing over here. And they run away from it. I don't even talk about that stuff. Other people are like, okay, we've got to do something. The church is going to hell in a handbasket. We've got to fix it. They start to over-function. Over-functioning and under-functioning are ways of making the system more anxious. And there's like five or six other ways you can do that sort of thing. So the goal in any sort of system that you're looking at saying my church is not with me is to, be a, is to know who you are and to stay calm. Keep calm and know who you are. That would be a good, cool sticker. An RYM sticker. What resource for the systems that you're talking about? There's yeah, get, uh, get Richardson on creating a healthy church. That's the easiest to read, uh, but they're all going to quote from the guru, which is a guy named Thomas, not Thomas Friedman. Thomas Friedman's the... Edwin Friedman. Edwin Friedman. He's a, he's a Jewish guy. He's dead. He's dead. He died in the mid-2000s. Uh, failure of nerve is the sort of systems theory Bible. I, it's a little hard to read. I've not found that easy to read. The Richardson book is much easier to read. But it'll, it'll unlock a lot of stuff for church dynamics that are, that are frustrating to you, especially if your youth group is some, somehow at odds with the leadership or you feel like you're alone. Yes, ma'am. Kind of similar, but how do you challenge the powerful inertia for non-reflection yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, honestly, I think that you've got to be the why person. Um, uh, there's a great uh, internet guy who he wrote a couple of books named Simon Sinek. Uh, S I N E K. Uh, he's got a great a video called The Power of Why. He wrote a book called The Power of Why. He also has another follow up called Find Your Why. W H Y. Sinek's basic point is is is, is this is why we're frustrated. And um, the power of why gets people along a, a unified service. Which is what we're going to talk about right after lunch, is what is the purpose of RYM? What's, what, what's RYM committed you to be our purpose? Um, I think to be that soul that is constantly asking why, um, 
But I will say this, that can become antagonistic if you don't have a way of, 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 of curing what ails them. And I think that one of the best experiences that, by their admission, it's not any magic that I brought, is I told the session, I said, we're going to get together and talk about what makes this church, this church. And Cynic was really great about um, giving some tools about how you do that. And it literally is nothing more than getting people in a room, the leadership in a room, taking one of those flip chart things and asking some, some, some key questions. The best way to start with your church is to start to get them to say, tell me the stories of when you thought to yourself, I will never leave this church because I love it so much. When did that happen to you? Hands go up. Because that's an innocuous way of bringing into it. And what happens is, is once you compile all those stories, you find gurgling up what that church really has come to value. That's what they love about it. So, and Seneca's and got a whole book on this called Find Your Why, where he teaches you how to have these sessions where people discover why they're there. You already know why you're there. You've just not named it. You've not sort of given it a, a title. Because until you name it, you don't know how to sort of maintain your culture. Remember the artifacts? The beliefs and values. People have beliefs and values, they just haven't named them. Right? Just That's a great question. How am I doing all the time? I got time for one more question. Yes, last one. Donna. Yeah, good job. It kind of goes back to the culture that we talked about in the beginning. Um, like we said, we're part of a church plant in a very small town of Grove, Oklahoma, that I'm sure you've never heard of. Mm, where there's like a Southern Baptist church every five miles. Mm. Um, so when we put Acts 29 in our church, it's like, that's a cult. They're making it book of the Bible. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, that's awesome. So we're <laughs> that we have four regular students in our youth group. When we say youth group, it's Sunday school morning. We're not big enough for Wednesday night yet. And with our students, they're saying stuff like, well, how come we're not going to go to the big worship? How come you guys aren't going to take us to winter jam? Um, and like my husband tells them, well, he doesn't tell them, but he says, I don't want them to be taught wrong. How do we speak yeah. to them and say, no, we're going to stay here and we're going to yeah. do this? I love them wanting to go with their friends. And yeah. I'll say this. you got to choose your battles. And if, if the odds are that far against me and literally 95% of their friends are going, I might be like, well, maybe I can go with you. I, I would be careful about that, in other words. Do I really want to die on this hill uh, for this particular program? But you know what's funny, though, is, is I found um, when we came to the University of Memphis in 1994, I mean, nobody had even heard of RUF. Um, we, we were the 26th RUF in the entire country in 1994, okay? We're at 165 campuses now. I mean, it's kind of a thing. People know about what RUF is. But I remember early on how many people kept wanting to um, get us to join together with their thing. Um, and, and, and through some guidance, it was not, this, this was not any sort of insight of my own, but through some guidance, people were saying, don't do it. You do your thing and do it well enough for long enough and make it to the point, help people do the work of um, polemics. And I've got to be really careful here. I'm not saying turn into a jerk, right? Where you're like, let me tell you how dumb those people are. Um, but it's okay to be like, well, you know, actually, we kind of want to do it a little bit of a different way, and here's why. What, I, what we found in RUF was that a lot of those students were like, oh, okay, that it kind of became something kind of cool because you had an identity. That's part of that presupposition of, of a reform approach to Scripture. Um, and I, I know I just gave you both answers, you know, Stay the course and maybe go with them. Um, <laughs> that's your decision that you've got to make between that. I just don't want you to be afraid to continue to pound your distinctives. You know? And just, to some degree, uh, 
A student's got to be convinced that it's going to be cool, you know, and that's not wrong. One thing that has helped is just taking your kids to RYN summer camps, and so then they're surrounded by, like, oh, we're not the only ones that believe this. Um, it's just a matter of fact when we get home, and then it's... We're going to talk this afternoon about avenues of ministry, and the avenues of ministry are just the way you meet with people, and it's like one-on-ones, small groups, and large groups. Those are avenues we're going to talk about that this afternoon. Um, but one of the other avenues, it's one of the forgotten avenues, are conferences. Conferences are fantastic ways of doing exactly what you described. People come in and kind of like, oh, this is like a thing. And as soon as your students know that something is a thing, they'll commit to it. Yeah. Absolutely true.